Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. I hope you feel welcome. My big green sign says you should. I'm holding this not because I forgot my words today. Um, and most of you are saying sometimes we wish. Um, but I, I hold this because this is actually going to mark a spot today um, around 4 o'clock, between 4 and 4.30, let's say 4.15, on Folly Beach. Because we have the wonderful privilege uh, this afternoon, we've got 14 folks who are scheduled to be baptized today. Uh, Yes, praise God. Praise God, praise God. Um, We are so grateful uh, for that opportunity, grateful to God for what he's doing and letting us participate, join him in what he's doing. It's just, it's going to be a great, great celebration. I just want to point out a couple of things. That's going to be the access point. There's a couple of changing rooms there and some showers um, for folks that are going to get baptized, just so you know, bring towels. You've been told what to bring. Um, there's a, a little black truck. Yeah, that's it. There's going to be a sign on a little truck like that that says here. And so that's going to be the access point. It's really the first um, access point that looked like that picture we showed you a moment ago that you'll come to. That's where you want to make your access to the beach. Once you get down to the beach, you're going to take a left and head back up north because we're going to go pretty much as far as we can and stay in the park area. But that's so that if you don't want to pay the $10 entrance fee into the park, you could park it out on the road, find a legal beach access point. Don't just walk through somebody's yard. <laughs> um, and make your way to the, par, uh, to the beach, and then you head south if you're going to do that that way. But you'll see this green flag there, okay? And uh, we're going to start right at... Uh, Right at 4.30, it's going to be a great time. We'll have a mini service. In fact, can you bring that QR code up, Stephen? Um, if you want to go ahead and take a shot at that now, um, that's going to have the words to the worship song we're going to sing, the praise song we're going to sing um, today. There'll be some of those out at the beach, so if you freak out and say, oh, I didn't get a shot, we'll have some out there for you to take on little pieces of paper. You'll be able to, to do that um, once you get there. And um, So we're going to start right at 4.30. It's going to be a great time. Uh, praising and, and, and just celebrating. Uh, we were so thankful to get to baptize Mr. James today. That was just so sweet. Uh, I remember several months ago, he was in my office, and he was sharing his life story. He man traveled all over the world, and uh, we just got to talking about his, his journey spiritually, and, um, and he prayed to receive Christ there that day. And it was just a great moment, and we've been looking forward to baptizing him. He, he battled with pneumonia a couple of times. We were going to baptize him a while back, and he just, in fact, he just got out of the hospital like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that, from pneumonia. And uh, he, he, I think he wanted to be baptized at the beach, but I, I, I kind of begged him. I said, we got this really nice warm heated pool. I don't want you to get sick out there, you know, that kind of thing. And so it was, it was just a beautiful thing to get to see him publicly profess the Lord Jesus today uh, in our midst. Now, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, if not, there's probably one in one of the seats in front of you under the seat. You can grab one there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're picking up where we left off couple weeks ago in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start looking uh, today at 
uh, verse 17 and go through verse 20. So we're only going to deal with four verses today. And some of you are saying, then why did the last service last so long? Well, anyway, here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week's message and this week's message are kind of going to be different in style, just so you know. Um, last week's message, we hit, hit some things. This one, you're going to have to wrestle a little more today, okay? You're going to have to think a little more deeply today. Now, hopefully you have a Bible, either one in your lap or one in the palm of your hand. And so often people think of the Bible maybe as like a book. I like to think of the Bible as a library. It's more than just a book. It's kind of, it's kind of like a library with all kinds of different writings in it. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's poetry, there's all kinds of things. But the Bible is mostly story. It is mostly story. Now, it, it contains some, some memoirs that are, are in there, a couple of three of those. There's, there's a book of wisdom, one-liners, that's perfect for 140-character tweets. Okay? It's called, the, anybody know it? Book of Proverbs, man. You could just pop in those, right, and just tweet them out there. There are quite a few letters that we have copies of these letters that were written to encourage uh, believers. Um, there's some biographies, uh, four biographies of Jesus himself are, are in this, this library. There are theological essays in there. There's a genre of apocalyptic literature, and Ezekiel and, and the Apostle John that rivals anything Hollywood could come out with, even with their you know, zombie apocalypse stuff. Uh, just it'll, it, it, it'll, it'll take that by storm. There's, there's a little bit of information about life after death in that library. There's, there's a lot of information about life before death and how it's best lived. Now, the library was written by a little over dozens of authors, several dozen actually, over a period of about a thousand years on a couple of different continents in, in another, you know, time and, and place. Um, a different kind of cultural framework. But interestingly, it is the best-selling book of all time. Do you know that about the Bible? Best-selling book. And the second place, the runner-up to the Bible, is like miles and miles behind. Doesn't even come, there's not a close second uh, on this. There's something about this library that humanity come, keeps coming back to. And the reason I think that is, is because it, like nothing else on the planet, describes the human condition. I mean, when you, when you go through the pages of this book, everything's in here. Love and hate and war, just every human condition. 
The futility of violence at solving human problems, it, it's, it's, it's all in there. It's just incredible what's contained in, in this library. It, it, there's, uh, there's demonstrations of what happens when God's people align themselves more with the political leaders of the day than they do with God himself. And I'll just give you a hint, doesn't turn out good. Just doesn't turn out good when that happens. There's direction about meaning and purpose in, in, in life. There's even directions in here on how to deal with mold in your kitchen. I'm being serious. It, 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 it does. It deals, with, it deals with that part of, of life as well. There's ancient wisdom in here about best ways to raise children. Uh, th- this book contains some stuff about sex that will make you blush if you read it. Um, just, just it, it foretells the end of the world. It deals with doubt and doctrine and dogma. It is all in here, in the Word, in the Word of God. Now, I'm convinced that we, this generation, we're living in a tipping point for the church, capital C Church. We're living kind of at this tipping point in the church in the West because a growing number of people, when we're honest about it, struggle with that book, the, the, the Bible. Some, and I'm not talking about the culture, I'm talking about the church now, some within the church actually have problems with the Bible. Not, not, not that they say it's boring or, you know, not that it's, I can't get my head around it, um, not that I can't understand it when I read it, but they take issue with it. Many, uh, especially with the Old Testament. I mean, just let's be honest. There's some gnarly stuff in the Old Testament. Okay? Wars and uh, violence and abuse. In, in the Old Testament, there are laws that regulate slavery. We have to think about what, how, how do we deal with that. And in the New Testament, there are quite a few things that stand in stark composi- opposition to uh, our, our culture. And so, when we're honest, just right here among us, when we open that book up, sometimes we might feel just a little bit, a little bit lost. Now, what we read a moment ago was kind of the introduction to the greatest sermon that would ever be given. That, that was still part of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And what we look at Today, again, I think might be the most important teaching of that whole message because it is essentially what Jesus thinks about the Bible. How Jesus thinks we should, as his followers, interact. How Jesus himself interacted with the Bible, handled the Bible, read the Bible, taught, taught the Bible. If you've ever thought to yourself, hmm, wonder what Jesus, how he feels about the Bible. Well, you showed up on the right day. Because that's what I want us to think about. And I want us to, you know, a lot of times when I've done messages about the Bible, I've tried real hard to convince you about some facts. I'm not going to do that so much today. My hope today is that you fall in love with Jesus a little more. And if you will fall in love with Jesus a little more, you will fall in love with the way he read the Bible. And the way he handled the Bible. And, and you'll, you'll want to do the same thing. Now, the Bible itself says some things about itself. It's not going to come up on the screen, so if you want to go back and look, you may want to write this down. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, may be familiar to you. Hebrews 4, 12 says this, the Bible speaking of itself. The Word of God is alive. 
and it is powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It is able to cut between the soul and the spirit. Folks, those are not easily divided. And if you're going to get in and cut between the soul and the spirit, you're diving deep into human being. But the Bible says God's word is able to do that. It can expose our innermost thoughts, it says. It has that capacity. Paul, writing um, his second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, not going to come up on the screen. You can write it down if you want to. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. Paul's talking about God's word, and he's helping Timothy understand why he needs to just make it part of his life. And he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God, all of it. All scriptures breathed out by God, and it's profitable, profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. Hang on to that, because we're going to talk a little bit more about righteousness in a minute. For training in righteousness. And it goes on to say, so that we could be equipped and complete in every way. And that's God's plan for his word, the Bible, that it would com- complete us and, and, and be fulfilled. Now, you may have heard some others, and maybe even me, because I believe it, that this book is both inerrant and infallible in all its ways. That it perfectly communicates and fulfills the will of God for his people. And we've got to figure out what do we, what do, we do with, with this thing. And so I want us to think about it from the vantage point of, of Jesus. And so let's go back and kind of take each verse at a time. You can do those four verses and walk through this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think. Don't think this way, that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now, that phrase, the law and the prophets, may seem strange to us a little bit. Um, It was perfectly used and utilized in Jesus' day. It basically just meant the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have one of these that was, you know, bound together. They didn't have, definitely didn't have it in the palm of their hand, um, you know, on a phone or anything like that. They didn't even have their own copy. If they wanted the Bible read to them, most of them didn't read it. If they wanted it read to them, they had to go to synagogue. And in synagogue, there were scrolls, multiple scrolls, because all of the Bible wouldn't fit on one. And they would uh, have the Bible read to them and, 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 and taught to them in the synagogue. Now, the reason that it's called here, Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, because that was kind of how the Old Testament was thought about it in that day. There was the law, uh, the Hebrew word there is Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you've never read Leviticus, let me just tell you, don't start, if you're going to start reading the Bible, don't start in Leviticus. Okay, you need to work your way up into Leviticus. Leviticus is where you'll actually find out about how to deal with mold in your kitchen, just by the way. Um, and a lot of other things, but it's, it's, a, it's a read, I'll tell you that. You know, there, there's, there's Leviticus, there's Numbers, and there's Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books called the law, but then pretty much everything else, they, they had some wisdom, literature, and poetry, but most everything else was called the prophets, and so it kind of starts with the histories right after um, those first five books of the Bible, and you got, you know, Joshua and Judges and Ruth and uh, the storylines, and then you get into the, the, the major prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, man, Ezekiel is a wild dude, just so you know, he's all over the place out there, and, and then the, the other minor, what we think of as maybe the minor prophets kind, kind of thing, and so when Jesus said the, the, the law and the prophets, basically what Jesus was saying, the Old Testament, the Bible in his day, he said, don't think that I have come to abolish the Bible. Don't, don't think that. 
That Greek word, can I get nerdy, Greek nerdy with you for just a minute? We're just going to get Greek nerdy for a second. That, that Greek word that's used there is kataluo. And, and kataluo can be translated as abolish. It can also be translated as destroy or dismantle. Um, and so when it's in re- reference to, in Jesus' day, when it was in reference to the scriptures, it actually had, to be, had, had a lot to do with disobey. Don't disobey it. Don't, don't, don't destroy it. Don't, don't dismantle it. Don't disobey it. Uh, do it. And so we're not really given the backstory here. But obviously, because Jesus is... Now remember, Jesus has been teaching. This wasn't his first sermon. This was just known as the greatest sermon. Jesus had been going all over uh, the, the Judea and Galilee teaching. And a great crowd had started following him everywhere he went. And the... His teaching was quite radical. And some thought, quite frankly, that his conduct was really kind of subversive to the religious culture of the day, kind of the mainstream, you know, faith of the day. And so apparently, we're not told this directly, but apparently there were some people that that were thinking that, and maybe spreading rumors, that Jesus had come to kind of do away with the Old Testament because of the way Jesus addressed this. Jesus kind of says, hey, Y'all, y'all been following me? Slow your roll, baby. Listen to me. I have not come to abolish. You, not, you better not even think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Now, that's a twist. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the complete opposite turn of, you know, uh, uh, abolish, you know. Now, we would, we would think that Jesus was kind of on that trajectory of saying, I have not come to abolish, I've not come to disobey the law. We would think that he would say, I've come to obey it. But that's not what he said. He said, I've come to fulfill it. A little bit, a little bit different word. Again, just going to be kind of Greek nerdy for a minute. The word that's used here for fulfill is the word plerao. And this, this plerao, it, it can also be translated as not just fulfilled, but as accomplished. It can be translated as to complete. It can be translated as to come to pass. And this phrase gets used often um, in the Gospel of Matthew. This word does, uh, having to do with things being fulfilled, things coming to pass. Um, for instance, let me give you two examples of this. Um, just on the night before Jesus, this is the night he was being arrested. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, it said, Then Jesus said, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But look at this, verse 54. But how then should the Scriptures be what? Fulfilled that it must be so. So Jesus is again saying, he's the same word here, that, that scriptures must be fulfilled. Just a few verses down. Um, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Same word. Might be made complete. Might come to pass. Did you notice that here it says the scripture of the prophets? It's tying that, that back together again. Just another name for, for the Bible, that it might be fulfilled. So, again, Jesus was apparently addressing those who were thinking they were going to do away with the Torah and those kinds of things. But Jesus was coming to say, hey, the Old Testament's not the end. 
The, the, the Old Testament's not the, the, the end of things. There's, there's something that's got to be fulfilled. That's why he didn't use the, the word, I've come to obey it. He said, I've come to fulfill it, which means there's something yet. There's something after this to come. There's, there's more to this, this great story. And what that story was waiting for its completion was Jesus. It was, it was Jesus. It was holding a place for, for, for Jesus. That's what the Old Testament was. You get to the end of it, there's a place marker. And it's for, for Jesus. And when we get into, with fullness, when we get into some of the, the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to dive into next week, one of the things that you're going to see is that Jesus kind of goes after kind of the liberal, progressive, religious people of the day who want it to just kind of, kind of, you know, do away with, abolish the law and the prophets, those things they didn't really like. But he also, one of the things that he does is he also offends, he's an equal opportunity offender, just so you know. He offends the people on the other side of the aisle that were more what you would think of as conservative Jewish way of reading the Bible, and they use it as a checklist so they could feel good about themselves. Check, I did this, check, I did this, check, I did this. And in Matthew 18... Jesus comes against us and he says, for truly I say to you, friends, when Jesus pauses and says, uses the word truly, and then he adds to it, for I say to you, what Jesus is saying is a little phrase. In fact, it's used over 30 times just in the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus uses that phrase, you need to pay attention. That's, that's his signature kind of trademark that he's saying, hey, do I have your attention now? And so Jesus, he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Now that phrase was a common used phrase until it was a figure of speech. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is the thing that you think of as kind of the smallest, least necessary part of the scripture not the smallest part of that is going to pass until it is fulfilled. So everything in this book was awaiting fulfillment in Jesus. Some of it is still awaiting fulfillment in his, in his second coming. But all of it is waiting for fulfillment in Jesus. And again, Jesus kind of does a little twist here. He said, because this could be translated, um, that word can be translated until everything is accomplished, until it all happens, or until it all comes true. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were sitting on that hill that day, and Jesus were to say, hey, nothing's gonna, not the, the smallest part of the law is going to pass away until it is all fulfilled, until it all is completed, until it all comes true. I would be wanting to say, raise my hand and say, what? Until what comes true? What you talking about? Yeah, and he says, until it, it all happens. And I'd want to, what, what is it, Jesus, that you're talking about? Are you talking about until everything in the Old Testament comes true? But Jesus is going to start give them some other things, too, some, some, some additional teaching. And, and Jesus is trying to point out here that the Old Testament is being fulfilled in him. It's none of it's going to pass away. Let's press on, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. And so Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes. Now, he's not talking about going and getting in your hammock with your Bible now. 
when he says whoever relaxes here. He, he says whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands. Now that word relaxes is the word luo. It can be, uh, it can be translated loosen. It can be translated set aside. And, and so what Jesus is saying here is anybody who comes along trying to relax or set aside or kind of loosen up a bit, any part uh, of the commands. Now, uh, again, the commands that he's talking about here, what, what is it? Is he talking about the Old Testament commands? Or is he talking about the commands that he's going to be giving and has already been giving in some places? What, what, which one is he talking about? I read some commentators, and they said the answer was yes. It's both. It's both and. He's talking about the Old Testament commands, and he's talking about the commands that he's going to, to, to be giving as well. And Jesus is saying is whoever relaxes, whoever loosens, whoever tries to set aside, if that's your attitude towards the Bible, you get to the places and you read something, you think, eh, I don't really like that. I'm not real happy with that. I'm going to just kind of loosen that or set it aside, you know, cut it out. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes, one of the least, that, that least part that you think of any commandment, and teaches others to do the same, you're going to be called least. You, if, you, if you try to do away with the least, you try to set, if that's your attitude towards God's word, you try to set something aside with it, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If that's how you're going to read the Bible, you're going to be called least. Whoever sets it aside will be called least. Friends, that, that, that tells me something about our relationship with the Word of God and God. And here's what it tells me. This is kind of the first big point of the day. There is a reciprocal relationship between how you handle the Bible and how you experience life in the kingdom of God. There's a reciprocal relationship between how you experience, how you handle the Bible and how you experience life in the kingdom of God. We'll talk, talk more about that as we go. But verse, verse 19 unfolds here. It, Jesus then turns and says, but if you're not one of those relaxers, but if you're somebody who does them, these commands, and teaches others these commands. In other words, if you will take it seriously. If you will, if you will take this book and, and realize it's, it's different from any other book on the planet, that it is really, truly living, alive, it's active, it's sharp. It has the ability to get down to the deep places in your soul. That if you will do that, if you will, if you will live in it, do it and teach it to others. Don't just have it in your head, but, but actually practice it and show somebody else. Then you will be called what? Not least, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I used to think that if I did this, that there'd be a little angel running around with a sign in heaven saying, ain't Joe great, ain't Joe. That's not really what it's about, just so you know. It's about you, you, will, you will be made whole. You will see beauty and splendor of God. You will see those blessed are yous growing out of your life. See, you will be called great. This is just so cool, just so, so cool. And Jesus is, you know, again, Jesus is not saying here, okay, if you'll just go home and you'll read your Bible every day, you know, if you'll do that and, you know, and you do what it says, you know, okay, God bless you, class dismissed. That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's something much deeper and much richer. He says, and, and we see this in the next verse because he's going to dive in, and this will be painful, especially to those who are listening to it that day. 
Some of us have heard it so much, we, we, we forget the pain that it caused. But Jesus goes on in verse 20 to say this, for I tell you. Now again, if Jesus stops you and says, truly, I tell you, or for I tell you, pay attention. For I tell you, unless your righteousness. Now, if you were not somebody who had church experience, and you were just kind of living out in the world today, unless you were born in like the 50s, you probably had no connection to the word righteousness. It's just not, you know, a word that gets used a lot out there. Um, it's a great word. It really has a lot in, in the Hebrew language to do with, with goodness. It was a popular word in, in that day. And so Jesus says, unless your righteousness, unless, unless your goodness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody on the hill would have swallowed hard then. Their jaws would have dropped. They'd have thought, what on earth is Jesus saying here? Now, just a little historical background. The scribes were like professional Bible teachers. They kind of grew up um, as, a, as a group of specialists in that day. And they, because at times Leviticus, for instance, was hard to, to understand. They needed somebody who trained in the scriptures and could teach it. Um, and so that was kind of their full-time job. They, there was another group that kind of came up called the Pharisees. Pharisees is a much larger group. They're more like a sect, where the scribes are more of a profession. This was like a sect or a denomination, if you would, in Judaism, kind of like, you know, there are Pentecostals and Baptists and, you know, Calvinists, those kinds of things. Um, in, in Christianity, the, these, these scribes and Pharisees, many of the scribes were Pharisees, okay? But not every Pharisee was a scribe. Okay, just so, so you kind of pick up on that. But the, the, the Pharisees were known for this strict adherence to the law, the very strict adherence to the law. Now, they were very respected for that. I did not say they were well-loved or liked, but they were very respected for their own attempt to pursue righteousness. But their, their pursuit took them into places that were a little dark at times because they did not love well. They didn't apply righteousness uh, in a way that brought about, about love. And so Jesus comes along and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, and people are going, how can my righteousness ever exceed that? And so what Jesus is really talking about is a different kind of righteousness, a whole new realm of righteousness that not, is not just on the outside, not just something you can check a box off for. It's, it's at a heart level. So I want to, again, I want to stop and just give you kind of my understanding here for a minute on this. The righteousness that Jesus points out here is like a next level righteousness. It's, it, it's, it's going down deeper. It's righteousness that's far beyond behavioral modification. Righteousness to Jesus is not just a, a, a about that. And so, as we'll see next week, when we get more into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is immediately, following this teaching, he gives six examples of a righteousness at the next level, a righteousness from a different kind of realm. And one of the things you'll notice as we go through it is they will all start in a similar way. It will start off with a phrase like this, you have heard it said. And then Jesus will quote something out of the Old Testament. And then he'll say, but I say to you. And he'll give his teaching, his explanation of that Old Testament teaching. You've heard it said, but I, I say to you, and you're going to see that cycle 
throughout the, the remainder of much of Matthew chapter 15. So I'm going to give you a snapshot preview of next week, okay? Next week, we're going to deal with Jesus talking about thou shalt not murder. He's going, to, he's going to address it. You've heard it said of old, you shall not, not kill. Then Jesus is going to say, but I say to you. And here's what Jesus is going to deal with. Jesus is going to deal with this in such a way so, because what was happening at the end of the day where the, the Pharisees were saying, thou shalt not kill. Check. No problemo. Got this one covered. I'm good to go. I can sleep tonight. And Jesus comes along and saying, there's more to it than this. This is more uh, uh, about your heart. This is not so you can just, you know, walk at the end of your day and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, Alex Murdoch. Ha- have any of y'all been following that? Never mind. I can't do that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, yeah, don't go there. Um, but he, Jesus, he doesn't want you to just get to the end of your day and, and point to somebody and say, I'm not them. I'm not like that. There's more to it. Jesus is going to dig down deep into the soul, where the soul and spirit come together. And he's going to challenge and say, you may be able to say at the end of the day you're not Alex Murdoch, but, you know, your heart's still filled with contempt for somebody. You may not have physically killed somebody, but you're filled with spite and poisoned by bitterness. And you have an arrogant, condescending attitude where you think you're better than everybody else. You're just infected with murder in in your soul. And so don't keep thinking that you're keeping that commandment. See, that's a whole different level of righteousness that Jesus is going to come to address. And Jesus says that checkbox righteousness, it's not enough. That in his kingdom, life is about so much more. If you want to experience fullness in the kingdom of of heaven, Jesus is saying, don't go the least, Go go for gold, go for great. See, this is the idea that the Bible's getting about, that Jesus wants to see uh, seep into our heart where we get transformed from the inside out. And that can only happen, friends. It will only happen if the Spirit of God is living in you. You will not be able to do this on your own. The Spirit of God has to be alive and active in you. And you've got to come to the conclusion that Jesus encompassed all of his teaching under, it's one word, it's the word love. You've got, you just got to see the love of Jesus flowing through all of his teaching. Now, I said earlier that this teaching from Jesus on the Bible, Joe's personal opinion, this has never been more important to grab hold of, especially for the church. And here's why. Because there are all kinds of debates raging in the church in our day, raging about sexuality, raging, r- raging about gender and marriage, gun control and immigration, the gap between the rich and, and the poor. All of those things are controversial and stirring up. But again, here's, here's what I think is the really big point, and Jesus is pointing us to is this, is that the issue behind every other issue is this question. Is the Bible authoritative? Is the Bible authoritative? Because if you conclude that the Bible is authoritative, now I know people in our day are allergic to that word. 
You know, we, we, we're just people allergic to that word. You know, we don't want to talk about anybody having any kind of authority or anything having a, a authority over us. But if you get to the end of what Jesus is communicating here and come to the conclusion that the Bible is authoritative, then you get to deal with it. About 50 years ago, a, uh, a man by the name of Charles Taylor, he's, um, he's a philosopher, sociologist uh, kind of guy. And he, he, he talked about and taught about how our culture has moved from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. He said our culture has made this shift. He, he demonstrated, you know, 500 years ago we were this culture under the authority of a king or under the authority of the structural church or uh, under the, the authority of, of, of a family. But we've moved from an authority, uh, a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. Now, that language sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds, it sounds pretty attractive. It kind of sounds like, ooh, we got an upgrade from authority to authenticity. And so, you know, this, this culture of authenticity tells us things like, you know, you got to be true to your true self. And you can't let anybody tell you, you know, what's really true about you. Can't, can't do that. You know, trust your feelings, Luke. You know, it's that kind of, you know, mindset where, where we have to do those kinds of things. And we are in a culture that itself is anti-authoritarian. Just the whole culture is like that. And our culture has defined freedom. And I would, I would argue that it's misdefined freedom to be, you can do whatever the heck you want to, just don't hurt nobody else. That's freedom. And it's killing us. And it's destroying us, you know. And I think, I think we're starting to see our culture waking up to the reality that if we live there long, it'll kill us. That we, that we can't continue life that way. I think we're starting to learn the hard way about some of these things. That if all we ever do is set out to satisfy our authentic self... And you just set aside Jesus and you set aside the Christian faith and you set aside thousands of years of wisdom on how human life best thrives, it'll destroy you. You know, we, again, our culture is kind of in this day of thinking we know better. You know, we, we, we know better, especially in a city like Charleston where we think we are so sophisticated you know, we just think we're so sophisticated. We've, and we've bought into a myth. We've bought into the myth of progress that says, if it's new, it's better. You know, we, we, we've just bought into that. We, we've so evolved after the Enlightenment. It's kind of, kind of the mantra, if you would. But I think our, our culture may be, may be starting on some of the fringes to wake up and say, wait a minute. Maybe there's something to that wisdom that God has given for thousands of years. Maybe, just maybe, there's some reality base for our culture in Genesis chapter 3. Remember what Genesis 3 is about? It starts out this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And so we're introduced to the, for the first time to Satan. But Genesis chapter 3, though it, it introduces the Satan, it's not really about Satan. Genesis chapter 3, I believe, is mostly about 
the broken human condition. The broken human condition. And, and it begs this question, how will each of you and me decide to, we're going to define good and evil? Are we going to get to decide it ourselves, or will we let the creator decide it? Will we, will we look at ourselves and say, I'm just the creation. The creator gets to decide. It, it reminds me of a story I read recently about um, a little boy. I think he was about five or six, and he literally got caught with his hand in the cookie jar before dinner, which was a no-no. And so he had to go do the timeout thing, and... Um, He's sitting in timeout, and he just starts grumbling. I mean, and so finally his dad goes over and asks him, what what is going on? Well, I'm just mad. Well, what are you mad about? I mean, you you did the crime. You got to do the time. What what are you mad about? I'm mad at Adam and Eve. (laughs) What are you mad about Adam and Eve for? You know, that seems strange. Because if they had never sinned, I wouldn't be in this mess that I'm in right now, and I'd be enjoying cookies. Friends, if Adam and Eve hadn't blown it, their kids would have. And if their kids hadn't blown it, their grandkids would have. And if their grandkids hadn't blown it, you would have. I know I would have. See, we all come to this Genesis 3 moment in our lives, many of them, where we have to make decisions about good and evil, about right and wrong. And you can fill in the blank of what kind of moral decisions, relational decisions, spiritual decisions. And we have this choice. We can either define good or good and evil based on that little voice floating in our heads or that big loud voice out in the culture or the voice of God. We get to decide which one of those voices that we're going to, to listen to. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. But see, we've got to see ourselves as, I'm the creation, not the creator. And then begin to understand that there is an intentionality in the framework of God's created order for humanity. And he's given us thousands of years of wisdom to embrace that and live out of that. Now, before I, I, I wrap up and pray, I want to give some observations and applications real quickly some observations and applications real quickly that I think are Jesus' kind of take on the Bible. Uh, my mentor, Pastor Kurt, used to say, Joe, when you, when you get to the end of a passage of Scripture that you've read, you've got to ask two things. What? What did it say? And so what are you going to do about it? So I'll be real simple today, okay? We're going to look at the what and the so what real quickly, okay? Here's the first what that I kind of draw out of this story. For Jesus, for Jesus... The Bible is a story that reaches its climax in his life. The whole Bible is a story waiting on Jesus. The whole Bible is a story uh, about Jesus. Now, again, just speaking about the Bible itself, if you've got a mathematical mind, about 75% of the Bible is, is narrative, some of that being poetry, um, but, 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 but this kind of narrative. And it has implications and uh, directions about authority on everything. And then you have another 15, 17% of the Bible that's like letters or like uh, teachings, like this Sermon on the Mount kind of thing. And so if you added up those verses that are just straight out commands, just straight out commands, okay, you'd end up with a, a single digit number, 
Okay, it's not a great big single-digit number, but about a single-digit number. That's the, you know, if you're a cynic, you'd say it's the rules and regulations. But it, that's not the biggest percentage of the Bible. And so when Jesus reads the Bible, he's not reading it as a laundry list of, of do's and don'ts. He's reading it as this great epic story, the greatest epic story about him being fulfilled in him. And along the way, in the context of real life, God gives directives and commands on the best way to live this life. And some of those commands were given for a specific season. And some of them were, forgiven, were given for every person forever. That's the kind, kind of the plan. Some of the, the commands that were given were given for that, that group of people known as the nation of Israel because God had a specific purpose for them. And God gave to them the Torah. And they were supposed to use that. And then there were these New Testament scripture, and all scripture was given to us, both the Old and New Testaments, for the purpose of maturing. But some was give, were given specifically for a season, and then they were no longer going to be utilized. Now, some of you are saying, Joe, are you saying there are commands in the Bible I don't have to follow? Well, stick with me. Don't go crazy on me here now. Just let me unpack this for a minute. How many of you, when you showed up today, anticipated that I would be here with a knife and I would slit a goat's throat. I don't see any hands. Nobody thought that was going to happen because the sacrificial system was done away with. God did that. Now, it was commanded in the Old Testament, but that's been done away with. In the New Testament, the New Testament also tells us that we can now eat pork and shellfish. Yay for barbecue! You know? You can go have shrimp this afternoon after you leave the beach baptism, you know? Because those laws were for a specific season and reason. But the command to not commit adultery and not to lie and not to, those are for everyone forever, for all people in all places at, at, at all times. And so we need a key that tells us how to interpret which ones were for then and which ones are, are forever so that we don't just pick and choose because we'll pick and choose wrongly. And so Jesus comes along and he teaches us about that in, in his teachings. We read about those in the Gospels. He, God gives us the, the, the whole of the New Testament. That's our interpretive key to the Old Testament commands. Jesus gives clear teaching on that so we know which ones to keep forever and which ones were for a, a, a season what we can move away from. And Jesus comes and says, this story reaches its climax in me. That was the great claim he made, that it's going to all be fulfilled in him, that that's what the Old Testament is about. So that leads us to the first so what. Here's the first so what. As an apprentice of Jesus, I must read the whole Bible as the one story about Jesus. I must read the whole Bible as the one story about Jesus. And I need to look for him on every page, even in Leviticus. You need to look for Jesus in Leviticus because he's there. He, he, he's in there. It all leads to Jesus. Second, what that I see out of what Jesus told us about God's word today is this. For Jesus, not only was the Bible story, the Bible was also scripture. It's also scripture. 
Now, I love that phrase that Jesus uses, not an iota, not, not a dot will pass till it's all accomplished. In John chapter 10, it's not going to come up on the screen, but in John chapter 10, Jesus is kind of in a debate with the Pharisees, and it got, it got so heated that there were people there who picked up rocks. They were about to stone Jesus to death. And there's what seems like a little bitty throwaway line, and Jesus says this in John 10, 35. He says, Scripture cannot be broken. Cannot be broken. And again, this is Jesus referring to this concept that he, he raises uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, that I didn't come to abolish this. See, Jesus teaches this concept to his, his apostles so that when we get into the book of Acts, there's a phrase that gets uh, kind of recycled several times in, in the, the book of Acts. When they're talking about the scriptures, they'll say something like, the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of, and they'll use like David or Isaiah or Jeremiah. They'll, they'll fill in that, that Old Testament personality that God used to, to write those, those words or speak those words. And then when we get to the letters uh, of, of the apostles, uh, the apostle Peter, I read this the other day um, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, not going to come up on the screen, but in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 it says, above all, above all you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative, knows those prophets, they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And I love that. You know, we, we talked earlier about uh, all of the Bible, all Scripture being inspired by God. And what that means is there was a partnership between God and, and a human being, that that human being would bring their own personal experiences into the writing, but they were, they were inspired by God. God was breathing in them in a very, very special, unique, unique kind of way. They, they weren't, it wasn't like a Stephen King movie where they got possessed and taken over. Um, there, there's, their own personalities were there. They cooperated with God. That's why, if you, know, you were with us last week, we, we looked at three Gospels and how they talked about the same event, Jesus walking on the water, and each of them had a different flavor to add. The same story, but God used each of those three gospel writers to bring the fullness of the story together. They were in perfect harmony. So what Jesus is saying here is the Bible is Scripture. The Bible is true. The Bible is, is trustworthy. And so the so what for that understanding of Jesus is this, is as an apprentice of Jesus, I must make the Bible the primary authority in my life. It was, it was what Jesus was putting forward is this, it is authoritative. And I need to make the Bible the primary authority in my life because it is God-breathed. And Jesus desires that his apprentices see it that way. And that we, we love it that way and we long for it that way. And I'm not talking about just the people in here who are bookish. You know, the readers among us. You don't have to get into it for four hours a day. Just a little bit every day. But you need to get to a place in your life where you're going to wrestle with this and, and deal with it and struggle with it and get absorbed in it and submit to the authority when their commands are given. And then that leads to what I think is as the third what. For Jesus, the Bible wasn't just meant to be read and believed, but lived and taught. Not just read and believed, but lived and and taught, and we can say that over and over and over again. Now, again, just some quick math for mathematic minds out here. If you were to go into the Sermon on the Mount 
and just kind of count the numbers of times where, where Jesus would, would basically say, you know, um, something like, now go do it. It would be about every fifth of, of, the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. About a fifth of it is Jesus stopping and saying, now, now go do it. Now, if you can just imagine, you know, one of my messages, yada, 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 and go do it. Yada, 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 yada go do it. Yada, 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 go, go do it. That was kind of the, the rhythm of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount because it was so important to him that we go do it. That's why he starts the, the message out by saying, whoever practices and teaches it will be called great. And then when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you get to Matthew chapter 7, the last verses are this beautiful parable of Jesus saying, for those people who build their life, their house on on the rock, man, your house is going to stand. But if you build it on sand, if you don't build it on my words, but you build it on something else, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to get blown away. And Jesus is saying these words of mine will give, will give you life. The kind of life that is transformed from the inside to the outside. See, Jesus didn't come to just give you information. He came to bring transformation. It's not enough to just read it we gotta, we got to roll around it and wrestle it and, and study it. But then we've got to do it. Now, what that means is sometimes you need to put your notes away. Sometimes you need to turn the podcast off and actually go do what you just read. Do it in community. Do it with a group of other believers. And that leads to the, the last so what of the day. As an apprentice of Jesus, I must not pick and choose with the Bible, not pick and choose, but follow Jesus in his way of reading it and putting it into the practice and teaching others to do the same. I need to read it in such a way that I put it into practice and teach others to do the same. Jesus' half-brother was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words in James chapter 1, verse 22. Many of you know the verse. Be ye doers of the word and not merely what? Hearers deceiving yourselves. If all you are is a hearer, you're self-deceived, baby. That's why you feel stuck. It's because all you're doing is listening, you know, absorbing, taking it in, and you're never, ever doing what God's word says. Now, I know that in our day, some of this sounds crazy. To make an agent document authoritative in your life. It just, it, it kind of, it sounds crazy in our culture. And you may be here today and you may be saying, hey, Joe, dude, look. I got questions that will stretch from here to Alaska and back about this book. And you're wanting me to make it an authority in my life. Friends, I've been trying to study this Bible now for over 40 years. And I still got questions. You, you, you know, if, if, if you leave this life before Jesus returns, you're going to have questions. And they're not going to be answered until, until we're in eternity. But here's what I want you to say if you're filled with questions. It's okay. It's okay. This is a safe place to explore those questions. This, this is a safe place. Now, I know the, the, the culture, the world says this is ridiculous. It, this is foolishness. But please hear me say this. It's safe here. You can ask those weird questions that you're thinking, you can't say that out loud. Yeah, you can. 
You can ask it here. You, you can ask that question. I, I love the, 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 I don't remember where I heard it first, but I loved it. I borrowed it years ago. This is a safe place to explore the dangerous message of the gospel of Jesus. It's just a safe place to do this. We will walk with you as a family. But here's what I got to do. I got to remind you what's at stake. Instead of just walking away, wrestle. Because what's at stake is eternal life. What's at stake is life in the kingdom of God. What's at stake is the destination of your eternal soul. There's a lot at stake. So don't walk away. Wrestle. Wrestle in the, in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we just come in this moment just to give thanks now. Jesus, that you are so good to us that not only did you come to pay a debt we couldn't pay, that we owed God, each and every one of us, that you came to pay that on the cross. And your word tells us that's what you came to do, that, that this great story called the Bible is all about you. You're at the center of it. And what you did on Calvary's cross and what you did three days later when you came out of that grave, just the great apex, God. God, thank you. You were so good to send your only begotten son to die in my place, to die in our place. You're so good. And then you're so good to have given us your word not to beat us up with it, but to set us free, to give us life. And so we come, God, to declare your goodness because we've been in your word. We come, God, in this moment now to, to give thanks to you because you're so good that you would display your word, Jesus, in such a way that we could get it, that you didn't come to destroy it, but you came to fill it with all its fullness, that every promise in in, in the Bible is yes in you, Jesus. You're so good. And so we want to close out our time thinking about how to read the Bible like you did, Jesus, how to handle the Bible like you did in the context of your goodness because you are good. And because you are good, your word is good. And so we come to give thanks and to declare to ourselves, to one another, to the gates of hell, that you, God, are good. You're a good Father. We come to worship you now. That way. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.